to be good looking cause he's so hard to see Come together right now Over me Okay, Lord, I have no idea what the Beatles were singing about with the toe jam football thing and all that stuff, but Father, uh, the refrain, come together right now over me. That's what you're singing, isn't it, Lord Jesus? To this entire fallen creation. And so, Lord God, I pray that that would be true and that you would use this sermon for that purpose and Father, uh, I was uh, literally sick to my stomach this week thinking about what we kind of need to preach on this morning and uh, wondering if I should. And then I came into the sanctuary this morning and Nick showed me this report on the news that Syria had fired rockets at Israel and Israel had fired rockets back. And I thought, no, this is exactly what we need to talk about. So Lord God, I pray for your spirit and your mercy to cover our uh, worship service this morning. And Lord, give us the courage to believe your gospel of love because it looks painful to us from this side of eternity. But Lord God, help us to see the way you see. In Jesus' name, we pray that you would help us to preach. Amen. Well, last week, you know, we preached on Ephesians in our continuing series through the book of Ephesians, and we preached then about God and about boasting, and we even preached about politics and the election. Last week was the election, and so some of you may be feeling a little bit of hostility, and I know that you're itching for more election coverage, and I aim to please. And you know who else could use an ad campaign? God. Because his poll numbers are terrible. A new poll by public policy polling looks at God's approval rating, and you might be a little surprised at what they found. God has a 52% approval rating. 52%! Barely half of Americans. But of course, the public is always tough on any prominent figure who had a child out of wedlock. But get this, only 71% approve of God's handling of creating the universe. And folks, asking about God's job performance raises an even more troubling question. What is God's job? Of course, that is ultimately an unanswerable question. Here to answer it. Please welcome the official chaplain of the Colbert Nation, Father Jim Martin. Papa Jay, what's going on? What is God's job? Uh, sustaining the universe. Can we judge him? No. <laughs> Thank I you mean, so much for coming by. <laughs> Why do you think his approval ratings are so low right now? Isn't that the fault kind of of guys like you? Aren't you, aren't you God's PR team and haven't you kind of dropped the ball? <laughs> Not I, uh, to judge. <laughs> Not to judge. Uh, I think that frequently when people are thinking about God's performance rating or what they think about God, they're thinking of how things are in their lives. Right. So that I'm not happy at all times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything is not working out perfectly for me right, right now. Is, is, is there anything that, that we can do to help God get better ratings right now? <laughs> I have a super PAC. Could that help in any way? <laughs> Well, since we're talking polls here, can we talk politics for a second? Can God get the upper hand in these polls by perhaps going negative on one of his opponents? <laughs> like running an ad against Buddha, you know? Uh -huh. Fatso wants you to have nothingness. <laughs> Yahweh wants you to have everythingness. Vote Yahweh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense to me, right? Fatso wants you to have nothingness. Yahweh wants you to have everythingness. Vote, vote Yahweh. I mean, have you ever wondered, though, why, why God doesn't do a better job promoting himself and defending his own glory? I mean, why does he tolerate such hostility from his enemies? I and mean, why doesn't he write in the sky, Nietzsche is dead, signed God, or, or Muhammad is a wannabe, signed Jesus, signature, signature of Jesus. Why does he tolerate such hostility from his enemies? If you're one of God's PR guys like me, you have asked that question. I mean, a little help here, God? I'm trying to do your PR for you, a little, little help? I mean, maybe God is weak. 
So he needs us to build walls around his kingdom and shoot arrows over those walls at his enemies, shoot arrows at the others. And, and, and I'm not just talking about metaphorical walls, I'm talking cement walls. I'm talking rocket-propelled grenades because we're Americans, we have that capability. Well, anyway, let's look at our scripture for the morning. Ephesians chapter two, we're at verse 11. Therefore, that's the first word. And whenever there's a therefore, it's important to ask what it's, what it's there for. Ephesians uh, one and two, that's what it's there for, what we've been preaching for the last eight weeks. We've learned that number one, each of us were dead in our trespasses. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so not different, but the same, imprisoned in a body of flesh. But number two, God saves us by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, lest none should boast. You see, our flesh constantly wants to boast. Our flesh is, is arrogant. We think competition explains life, but, but it doesn't explain life, it explains death. Our, our flesh causes us then to, to compete, causes us to build walls and go to war against the others. Our flesh is a wall, separating life from life, and that, is, is death, but, but number three, God will unite all things in Christ. That's what he said in, in Ephesians chapter one, verse 10. So God is not weak, and Jesus has all authority in heaven and, and, and on earth. Already the church, his body, is mysteriously united under him who is the head. Ephesians two, verse 11, therefore, okay, we're gonna get practical, all right? You, we learned all this stuff. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, you ethnos, you nations in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Remember, circumcision is cutting away the flesh that causes, uh, that, that um, covers that place where the groom becomes one one body with his, his bride in, in the sacrament of the covenant of marriage. That's, that's significant. And Paul writes that we were circumcised in Christ. At the cross, he bore our sins in his flesh and was cut off. In the Old Testament, the bride is sanctified by her groom's circumcision. Isn't that fascinating, bride of Christ? Well, anyway. The foreskin is like a protective barrier or wall covering the place where two become one in ecstasy, ecstasy that is life and bears life, two become one no longer separated. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. We, we love walls, we, we love to build walls, don't we? Remember the walls of Jericho? Josh fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, you remember that? Or remember the walls of Jerusalem? Like the whole book of Nehemiah is about building those, those walls or the walls uh, around the temple in, in Israel. We build walls for protection and we build walls to bring order to our world. We build physical walls and we build mental walls. Well, Paul writes the dividing wall of hostility and so Bible scholars ask the question, well, what does it mean by the dividing wall of hostility? What is that? Some have argued that it's the curtain in the temple. Remember that? That separated the holy of holies from the people that separated God from the people. The curtain is Christ's flesh, according to the book of Hebrews, and you'll remember that as Christ's body was broken, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. So some people think that the dividing wall refers to the barrier between God and man, and some people think that the dividing wall refers to the barrier between men and men. Uh, the dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple. And now this is fascinating, but it's important to remember that Paul is probably writing to the Ephesians from a prison cell in Rome. He was shipped there from Jerusalem because he was accused of bringing an Ephesian named Trophimus into the um, court of the Israelites from the court of the Gentiles past the barrier. This is an actual inscription that they found in Israel, in Greek, that was on that barrier. 
It threatens um, that a person's life is forfeit if they are a Gentile and they cross that, cross that, cross that barrier. And, and, and you see, that's actually why uh, Paul's in prison as he writes to the Ephesians, taking someone past that barrier into the temple. Do, do you remember what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple? Remember that? He seemed pretty hostile. I mean, if, if you ever saw Jesus ticked off, I mean, it seemed like it was then. He was, he was hostile, and he quoted Isaiah saying, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all the ethnos, the nations, the peoples, the Gentiles. Well, anyway, some think that dividing wall of hostility was that barrier in the temple. Some think the dividing wall of hostility uh, is the law of commandments and ordinances, which Paul is gonna say Jesus abolished. You know, God's law is good, but, but I use it to build dividing walls of hostility. I use the knowledge of good and evil, in other words, in order to judge God and to judge people and to judge myself. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he may and might create in himself one new man, one new Adam in place of the two. Galatians 3.28, Paul wrote this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, congratulations. If you weren't already, you're Jewish. Did you know that? Chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. The king of the Jews is your husband. You are his body, he is your life, his blood flows in your veins. Congratulations. That, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, his body, uh, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the hostility. You know, maybe the dividing wall of hostility is hostility. Any hostility. You know, a wall doesn't necessarily have to be a wall of hostility if the gates are open, right? Revelation 21, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down, coming down, adorned as a bride for a husband. She has the glory of God. She has 12 gates founded on 12 foundations inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. She's a city, she's a bride, she's a temple. Verse 25, her gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there in her. People will bring into it, into her, the glory and honor of the ethnos, the Gentiles, the nations, but nothing unclean will enter, nothing hostile will enter, but the gates are, are always open, at, at least from heaven's side. See, a wall doesn't have to be a wall of hostility, not if the gates are opened. You know, every cell in my body has a wall, a, a cell wall, and yet every cell is open to every other cell in my body. My body is a diversity in unity without hostility. My marriage is a diversity in unity, and, and sometimes, sort of, without hostility. <laughs> and in those moments, it's ecstasy when the gates are open. Well, Paul writes that Jesus killed the hostility. Kill. Apocteno. If you study it, you'll see it's a very hostile world. A hostile word. And it is a hostile world, isn't it? But, it, but it's a hostile word. He, to kill, to, to slay. So Jesus is really hostile about hostility. I mean, it's like he just hates hatred. He is incredibly violent towards violence. I mean, when it comes to hell, he just gives it hell. Revelation 20, verse 14, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire, and God is fire, thrown into the lake of fire, 21, four, and death shall be no more. 
amazing. You know, some people argue that hell is endless hostility and endless death. Well, the fire is endless because God himself is fire, but death is absolutely not endless. Hostility is definitely not endless. God's wrath comes to an end. Scripture says it in several, several places. Jesus kills the hostility. Isn't that wild? Jesus is God's wrath upon wrath. He does violence to violence. Jesus is the death of death. We talked about that last time. Remember, what is the death of death? Anyone, anyone, class? Life, eternal life, no death. And so anyway, what, what would be hostility upon hostility? Maybe, yeah, someone whispered it. Grace? Yeah, grace, hostility upon hostility. See, grace is eternal fire that never ends. And there is no greater violence upon evil than grace. And nothing offends evil people as much as grace. But in the end, grace devours evil, destroys evil, and liberates people from the evil to which they were imprisoned. Jesus kills the hostility. He is the end. So on his cross he cried, it is finished. And the walls came tumbling down. Hey, do you remember what the commander of God's army, remember that in, in Genesis, the commander of God's army said to Joshua on the plains of Jericho when Joshua asked, are you for us or against us? Remember what the commander of God's army said? Remember his answer, are you for us, against us? And he said, no. <laughs> Doesn't listen well. Um, no, and yet the guy has a drawn sword and he appears to be dressed for battle. What's he battling? What's the God-man battling? The walls. Israel did not walk, knock down the walls. They worshiped and the walls came tumbling down. And check this out, on one side of the wall was Israel, on the other side of the wall was Rahab, the harlot, great, 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 great grandmother of, of Jesus. The God-man's father was on one side of the wall and his mother on the other. I know the Old Testament is violent, but, but you read it carefully and you will discover it is violence upon violence in the service of love. It's wrath upon wrath, hostility upon hostility. In a garden, we made a covenant with death, and the rest of Scripture is the story of the death of death, which is the story of life, which is the story of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Hey, do you remember why they crucified the Prince of Peace? Wasn't it because he preached peace to the other side of the wall? Because he quoted Isaiah saying, a house of prayer for all the ethnos. It's because he prophesied, these walls will come tumbling down. It's because he refused to lead a nation of ethnic Jews in rebellion against the Gentiles, the empire of Rome. It was because he refused to be a racist. He was hostile to that hostility. And that hostility crucified him. And then the walls literally came tumbling down. In reality and in eternity, there are no dividing walls of hostility. But in space and time, we're still watching them tumble down. In other words, we're watching thy kingdom come. We're watching the new Jerusalem coming down. And if you confess Jesus Christ as your savior and your, your Lord, you, you are that new Jerusalem coming down and you've got gates. Verse 15. Make one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. Didn't bargain for peace, didn't threaten with peace. He proclaimed peace, preached peace, announced peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. They both need peace. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One temple one sanctuary, one dwelling place for God by the Spirit, one body, one bride, one people, one race. You know, 150 years ago, the United States of America was arguably the most racist nation on the face of the earth. And many used scripture to justify that racism, that slavery, claiming that blacks were the descendants of Canaan who was cursed by Noah. It's terrible theology, totally unbiblical. And what is biblical is that the very first became very last. He became a slave, became a curse for each, each one of us. About 75 years ago, uh, it seems pretty clear that the most racist nation on the face of the earth must, must have been Nazi Germany. Inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche, Charles Darwin, Hitler believed that Aryans were the new Superman, most fit to survive, and Jews were least fit to survive. As a kid, my two best friends were, were Jews. Eight years ago, no, uh, yeah, it was eight years ago, I, I had a chance uh, when I was speaking over in the Czech Republic to go to Poland, and one day I just visited Auschwitz alone, took these pictures. These are the, the ovens. I, I, uh, I laid down in these bunks, in these barracks. Can you see the, the bunks? And I knew that Jesus had laid down in those barracks and that Jesus had been gassed in this gas chamber and that his ashes were spread in this field because he said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. And of course, it wasn't just Hitler that inspired the hostility. Christians in Europe had been erecting that dividing wall for centuries, claiming that ethnic Jews were cursed for they descended from people that had crucified the Messiah. Of course they forgot that the Messiah was Jewish and that they also uh, crucified the Messiah and they, they descended from 12 Jews who began to call themselves the church. Well, 18 years ago, most Americans would argue that the most racist country in all the world was South Africa. And so, you know, the U.S. and the world put a whole bunch of pressure on South Africa to end apartheid and to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. But what's the most racist country in the world today. And this is separateness. As a South African growing up in apartheid, um, I definitely see parallels between um, apartheid in South Africa and apartheid here. Apartheid was designed to separate people uh, with the hope, supposedly, <laughs> that um, it would resolve a conflict. But the practicality of it is it, it never does. This is almost, in my eyes, kind of like apartheid on steroids. And, um, but maybe that's because I saw it from a different perspective as a white South African. But certainly there weren't big walls like this that separated us. Nothing seems to make a bolder statement about the division between Israelis and Palestinians than the separation barrier, a network of fences and high concrete walls that cut through the West Bank for hundreds of miles. That's from a documentary that was in theaters just a couple years ago 
from a new friend of mine named Porter Speakman. It's titled, um, With God on Our Side. And, and, and now maybe do you sense it in yourself, maybe in, in others, um, a little hostility? And maybe you think, but Peter, that's different. Israel is a democracy. Well, was the U.S. a democracy in 1860 when we enslaved four million people? And maybe you think, but Jews were victims of racism in Germany. Yeah, it, it was absolutely evil, absolute evil. Six million ethnic Jews murdered. And now four million ethnic Palestinians are refugees or exiles, and according to some, over five million have been killed since 1948. Now, you can argue statistics, but isn't it fascinating how victims can become victimizers? You see, that's the way it always works, without a deep and abiding faith in the grace of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And maybe you say, but, but the Arabs are so angry. Well, of course they're angry. In 1917, there were about 54,000 Jews living in Palestine, peaceably, or relatively peaceably, among their Arab neighbors. Now there are about five million who say the land belongs to them. While most of the Palestinians have been killed, exiled, or still live in refugee camps, and while the U.S. has supported Israel with something like $100 billion since 1948. Now there may be some good reasons for that, but when folks say, I just understand all the hostility. I don't understand why those Arab terrorists are so angry. Well, I said, to them that they study a little history and theology. And you may say, well, Islam is evil. It's just evil. And I'd say, well, maybe so. It's a religion of law that rejects the Messiah who is God's grace and glory. But there are other religions of law that reject the Messiah who is God's grace and glory. And by the way, many Palestinians weren't Muslim. They were Christian. In 1922, the, the British census estimated that 51% of the population of Jerusalem were Christian Arabs. That is definitely not the, the case today. In fact, today there's a cement dividing wall between Jewish Jerusalem and Arab Bethlehem. Six years ago, some of us visited uh, uh, Jerusalem and then went through this checkpoint and visited Christians in Bethlehem on the other side of that wall. We met with Arab Christians who run the Bethlehem Bible College. You see, the wall was designed to keep them out of Jerusalem, but according to Jesus, they are Jerusalem. And you keep them out, you, you, you keep him out. And you may say, well, Israel's not racist. There are Arabs in, in Israel, and yeah, but the law is designed to keep Israel a Jewish state. If you're Jewish, you can immigrate, and what's a Jew? Well, the law of return, um, it, it, it specifies that, that a Jew is someone with Jewish ancestry, that's race, or a convert, that's religion. But if you're Jewish by race, and you confess Christ to be the king of the Jews, according to the court, 1989, you can't enter. You don't want that element in Jerusalem. And you may say, what should the government of Israel do? I mean, that is a big question today. You need to hear me very carefully. I don't know. And if you say, well, what's the political solution? Listen very, very carefully. There is no political solution. The only solution is on the other side of that wall in Bethlehem. You may remember that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, saying, would that you knew the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And he told them, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Bashir. He was, I think that if I remember his name correctly, he was the the Arab Christian professor at the Bethlehem Bible College that hosted us. You see, all they have to do is say, blessed are you, Bashir, for you come to us in the name of the Lord. You see, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem on the other side of the wall. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a food trough in a peasant's shack the other side of the wall. 
And maybe you say, but God gave, he gave the land to Israel. Yeah. So who's Israel? Ask the Apostle Paul. Who are the children of Abraham? Who, who are the Jews? Who, who, what is Jerusalem? What's the temple? What's the sanctuary? Has, has God broken down the dividing wall of hostility or not? See, it becomes an important question. I mean, are there two people or has God made one? Is Brad Braverman my brother? And David Hart, my brother, and am I theirs? That's, that's an important question. St. Paul, all the New Testament, um, you'll find that they answer that question. It's, it's a rather surprising answer. But anyway, I, I want you to know that um, I am not at all convinced that five million Israelis are the most racist group around. Not at all. I mean, many of them, many, many, many of them are, are fighting tirelessly for justice for the Palestinians, and many don't claim any ethnic or religious superiority. They're just trying to survive in a sea, a literal sea of Arab hostility. It's not those five million Israelis. It's, I think it's someone else. Thomas Williamson is a Baptist pastor. He wrote the following. He wrote, what would you think of a religious sect that taught there is one race that is by nature superior and another race that is by nature inferior. And suppose that this sect taught that the superior race has a divine right to dispossess members of the inferior race and take the properties without compensation and to ethnically cleanse those who resist this expropriation using violence if necessary. And suppose that this sect believed so strongly in the system of racism and ethnic cleansing that it was willing to plunge the world into war in order to fulfill its objectives. And suppose that this sect claimed 70 million adherents in the world's most powerful nation and had a stranglehold on the foreign policy of that nation so that the military and financial might of that nation was directed toward the goal of helping the superior race and suppressing the inferior race. You know, he's not talking about the Jews. He's not talking about Muslims or, or Nazis. He's talking about American evangelical Christians. In particular, Christian Zionists who, who base their beliefs on a particular brand of very bad end times theology and love to quote Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, um, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. They say it applies to Abraham's seed. So if you bless Israel, you get stuff. And if you don't, you won't. Because Israel is the seed. Yet Paul makes it clear. Abraham's seed, singular, he says in Galatians, is Christ. See what that means? It means Israel is not your judgment. Christ Jesus is your judgment. And we seem to always find a way to put him on the other side of some wall. And maybe that's our judgment. And not only that, God said that he blessed Abraham and his seed, that he might be a blessing to all the ethnos, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, even Arabs, especially Arabs. And remember, Isaac and Ishmael were brothers, both sons of Abraham. Isaac, it's your brother on the other side of the wall. It's your family, and that's the blessing. The blessing is your brother and your father's heart. Jesus, from the bosom of uh, the father. Whatever you do to the least of these, his brothers, you do to him. People say theology doesn't matter. I'd like to suggest to you that bad theology may be responsible for 9-11. Several wars and the death of millions. People say that theology doesn't matter, but listen closely. Theology literally is the only thing that matters. Theologos. It means God word. And you see, Jesus is the word of God. And this is really good news. It means that you, you don't have to be a scholar to have good theology. 
However, you may have to be a scholar to explain good theology, to explain Jesus away, to explain away what he said when he said, love your enemies, to explain how love your enemies does not mean love your enemies. Well, anyway, in 2005, having preached the Revelation, and all the end time stuff, having preached uh, through, through Matthew, as I got to the end of Matthew, I realized I gotta preach on this, and I preached several sermons on the topic that you can go listen to online, but let me tell you, I had never ever experienced such hostility as I did then. But soon I realized I was about to experience way more. One day, I, um, I met with a pastor of a nearby megachurch, it was around this time, we had lunch down at Hops, and. He showed me this passage, a big supporter of Israel, showed me this passage in Romans 11, verse 26, where Paul writes, and in this way all Israel will be saved. And I remember George said, look, Peter, in this passage, Paul isn't just talking about the church, he's talking about old ethnic Israel that has made themselves enemies of God. All Israel will be saved. And the more I looked at the passage, the more I realized he's right. I mean, and even in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel prophesies that the dry bones of Israelis will, will rise from the grave that would be Sheol, be covered with meat, and enter the land. Incredible. Anyway, Romans eleven twenty six: all Israel will be saved. My pastor friend thought that meant that they were like a different breed than the rest of humanity. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be saved. But, but I kept reading. Just six verses later, Romans eleven thirty two. for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, on all, on all, mercy upon all. But when it was when I began to preach that, mercy on all, well, that's when I really began to experience hostility. And not from Nazis. Not from Muslims. Not from Jews. Not even from Christian Zionists, but from my own tribe. Evangelical Presbyterians. Calvinists. You see, staunch Calvinists believe that people are saved entirely by grace, just as Paul taught us in Ephesians, that's correct. People are saved entirely by grace, but they also believe some people can never be saved, which means Jesus died for some and not for others, which means some are vessels of mercy and some are vessels of wrath, which is to say there really are two races of people in this world, one created by God for uh, endless bliss and ecstasy and the other created by God for endless torment, endless conscious torment. And, and, and you see, it's, it's the way you, you view people that shapes the way you treat people. So if I think that someone carries the curse of Cain, it's a little easier to enslave them and take their stuff. If I think someone is an inferior species, it's a little easier to take their property and put them in an extermination cramp. If I think God has chosen my race over another's race, it's easier to justify injustice. If I think I'm chosen and another is not chosen, it's easier to justify all my stuff in a world of poverty. If I think, oh, if I think I'm, 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 I'm a vessel of mercy and someone else is a vessel of wrath, you see, I don't have to love them. But if on the other hand, they're a beloved child like my sister Lydia or my sister Rachel of, of the same loving father, well, the whole landscape changes. You know, it's in Romans that Paul talks about vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. But then he writes, God consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. In Ephesians, he tells us we were by, by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We all have vessels of wrath. And then he writes, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He, he's broken down the, the walls, maybe, of that vessel of wrath in himself, making one new man in place of the two. One man, one body, the church. The church is that group of people that already believe Christ has united them together under his his headship. But in Ephesians 1.10, Paul told us that the plan for the fullness of time was not 
only to unite us, but all things in Christ Jesus. And you see, if in the internal realm, all things really are united in Christ Jesus, then ultimately, in the final analysis, in the final judgment, there really are no dividing walls of hostility. And I think they call that realm, I think they call that kingdom heaven. And yet here in space and time, in an effort to maintain control, I keep erecting dividing walls of hostility in fear. See, I think the dividing walls protect me. But maybe they enslave me. I think I'm building heaven on earth and I'm only enslaving myself in hell. And so maybe there, there is a Holocaust far worse than anything in Germany or Israel and, and maybe it's committed by people like me, people like us and, and the victims are us. For the measure you give is the measure you get. Give walls and you'll get walls. Give hell and, and you get hell. We've talked about all of that, though, before. And so as I was preaching this morning, and, and we talked through the stuff in Israel, and you know that Israel's flying r- rockets, and Syria's sending off rockets. And, I mean, maybe you, you were kind of caught on some practicalities. I think I know what you were thinking at one point. Peter, this is all nice theology, but just try going to the Middle East. I mean, just try going there and living without dividing walls of hostility. Shoot, just walk down to Colfax without dividing walls of hostility. Well, just eat lunch with my in-laws without dividing walls of hostility. And you'll see, you'll get the crap kicked out of you. You'll get crucified. Right. Maybe that's why he said, if you want to follow me, pick up a cross and come follow. You see, it's like the cross really is a door to the kingdom of heaven. And the only place safe from the danger of love is hell. You know, I think Jesus was the first Adam, the first man to walk through this world without dividing walls of hostility. And that is why this world was so insanely hostile toward him. And yet that's how he broke down the dividing wall of hostility and killed it, the hostility. Now, if you're tracking with me, you you should probably be asking another question, or you were asking another question, and that's this. Hey, Peter, what the heck? I mean, didn't God command the Jews to build all those dividing walls, right? Didn't he command them to build that curtain in the temple? Didn't he command them to build the walls of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem? I mean, why did he have them build all those dividing walls? just so they could watch as he tore them down? Yeah. (laughs) He consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And something amazing happens when we receive mercy. We become merciful. Something amazing happens when we receive grace. We become graceful, and God is grace. Hostility upon hostility is grace. And that's the final judgment. Burning hot grace. In 1960, a pastor in East Germany uh, published a, a play, wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah, and the last scene depicts the final judgment All the peoples of the earth are symbols on the plains of Jehoshaphat. They think that's Armageddon. They're all awaiting God's judgment, Armageddon, and and they're not waiting submissively. They're all hostile, gathered in small groups, talking indignantly, disproving of God's job performance, giving him a very poor job approval rating. One group is a band of Jews a group that has known absolutely profound suffering. Suffering at the hands of Christians, suffering at the hands of Nazis, suffering at the hands of, of Arabs, their brothers. And they demand to know, what right does God have to pass judgment on them? 
Another group consists of American blacks, and they're hostile. They have suffered amazing humiliations, floggings, servitude, and so they judge God to be a very poor judge. What does God know? Another group is composed of those born illegitimately, questionable birth, having suffered insults and derision all their their lives. Hundreds of angry, hostile groups like this, they're scattered all over the plain. Jews hostile towards Gentiles, Gentiles hostile towards Jews, all hostile at God. Each group appoints a representative to demand justice from God. They, They meet in council and make a decision. And the decision, the judgment, is that God is an incapable judge unless he knows their pain and so their conclusion reads as follows they, they write it out this is their demand you must be born a Jew the circumstances of your birth must be questioned you must be misunderstood by everyone insulted and mocked by your enemies betrayed by your friends you must be persecuted beaten and finally murdered in the most public and humiliating fashion such as the judgment passed by the assembly upon God The clamor arises to this fevered pitch on the plains of Jehoshaphat as they wait his response. And then a brilliant, dazzling light illuminates the entire plain. One by one, those who have passed judgment upon God fall silent. For emblazoned high in the heavens for the whole world to see is the signature of Jesus with this inscription above it. I have served my sentence. And that's the final judgment. That's how he kills the hostility and calls us into ecstasy. That's how God makes us in his image. This is the final judgment This is how he kills the hostility and calls us into ecstasy. That on that night when this entire world was hostile toward him, the Prince of Peace took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you now. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the eternal covenant. In one gospel it says just the covenant, the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is how he kills the hostility makes us in his image, as his body, his bride, his city, his temple, his sanctuary. You know, when we started the sanctuary, I received this prophetic word from like a bunch of different places, so I knew I had to pay attention to it. Um, and, and it basically was this, Zechariah chapter two, verse four, Jerusalem, one of the words was church, Jerusalem, my church, will be a city without walls, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. We'll talk about that next time when we finish the sermon, because this was basically just the introduction, but this is my point, church. You are not protected by walls of stone. That's an illusion. You are protected by a wall of fire. And this is the fire. It's the love of God poured out. The life of Jesus, your Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him, so go therefore and make disciples and do it without fear. This is the fire. He calls you to come to his table You can tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in in the cup, and then take that glory and place it in the temple. You see, you are the new Jerusalem coming down. And may your gates always be open 
In Jesus' name, amen. I saw every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them praising the Lamb upon the throne. Lord Jesus, give us the courage through the power of your Spirit to believe the truth and live the truth no matter what it costs us knowing that you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have peace. Service went a little long, but I predict the Broncos will win. You'll be okay. <laughs> and uh, I want to encourage you to come back in two weeks for the service that we talked about. You know, this is fascinating, but uh, the, the Israelites were commanded to observe a holiday that as far as historians know, they never observed. Do you know what the holiday was? Yeah, the, the, the Jubilee. It was the Sabbath of the Sabbaths. And what they did, were supposed to do at Jubilee is like tear down all the dividing walls. But that's scary, because that means people would come out of prison. Uh, that means that if you had gained a whole bunch from somebody else, you had to give it back. That means if you had occupied somebody else's territory, uh, you had to move back to uh, the territory that had been allotted to, to your family. And uh, it's scary uh, for us because we look at it from one side of the wall. We look at it from the dark side of the wall, terrified about what might be on the other side. And this morning we kind of talked about it from that side. Next week we'll talk about it from the other side. What's on the other side of that wall? <laughs> And you see the other side of that wall, when that wall comes down, it's not bad, it's incredible news. And you see, Jubilee is actually incredible news. It's the recipe for an unbelievable party that never ends. And so in two weeks, it's easy to talk about you know, stuff over in Israel or something like that when it's other people's stuff. But uh, this message is for you and your stuff. And hopefully in two weeks, we'll start living out a little bit of Jubilee when we go down to uh, the youth center. And uh, that's supposed to just be a taste. I mean, all of our life is supposed to be Jubilee. And God understands if it's scary. I mean, he has compassion on you. He knows that you're made of dust, but you're not forever gonna be made just of dust. So in Jesus' name, um, believe the gospel and live the gospel, okay? And, and if you'd like prayer, members of our prayer team are down front, they'd love to pray with you, Biff and Nick. If you didn't come up for a communion, you can just come up and get some, okay? It's yours, so if you're hungry, you can have some more communion. And uh, if not, you can have donuts downstairs, and they have added sugar, so I'd recommend that. Um, but we'll see you next week. Have a great week.